Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome again to The Jury Is Out. We're all busy and you might have missed some of our podcasts. Here's one of our favorites. I hope you enjoy it. We'll be back with a new episode of The Jury Is Out next Wednesday. Hi, welcome back to The Jury Is Out. I'm John Simon. I'm Eric Veith. And we're here today to talk about experts, expert witnesses. And we've got another attorney here joining us from the Simon Law Firm. Why don't you introduce yourself, Erica? I'm Erica Slater, and I've been working at the Simon Law Firm for the last six years. Well, today we're going to be talking about preparing an expert for a a deposition. This is an important topic, of course, because in a lot of cases, an expert is, is your case. If the expert does well, your case is strong. If the expert fails in any major way, it it hurts your case dramatically. And that's because in some cases, the plaintiff doesn't have enough information to explain to the jury what happened. The plaintiff might be hurt badly, but doesn't know the mechanism, doesn't know enough about the design of a machine or was unconscious or has no memory about what happened in an auto accident. And so the expert has to carry the ball and explain the case uh, to the jury. So that's why this is a, this is a critical issue to, to talk about. What's your high level thoughts about what makes a really good expert? Is it education, experience, how well you think they're going to be able to communicate to the jury? I think number one top of the list is how well they can communicate with the jury. I have had, and I know you have too, Erica, experts with 200 page CVs and they've written books and articles and they're just not real communicators. And it's not their fault. That's just who they Too are. Too cerebral. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes. Our job is to simplify things. That's what we do. We are teachers. We explain very complicated concepts and try to break them down to something simple that makes sense. And that's really what I look for in an expert, somebody that can explain something. This could be the most credentialed, well-thought person who has studied the case for months. But if they don't show up, and communicate that clearly. It's, it's as though nothing ever happened before that. Obviously, there are certain <clears throat> experts that are better communicators than others. And you're not always going to get an expert who has the qualifications you need and who also is a great communicator. But I think the to, to balance that out or the equalizer there is to make sure that expert is absolutely, completely prepared, has read everything, is confident in what they're saying, and most most importantly, they believe passionately in what they're saying. I do think that it is more important in the cases that I've been finding experts for lately to make sure they have some sort of recognizable, if they publish, that they've published on in this field and on the topic. I just never want to put up a slate of experts who aren't known in the field or they don't have recognizable education or things like that against defense experts who are Harvard trained and Ivy League this and that. I'm not saying that every expert has to have a perfect Ivy League pedigree, but I think it's really important to pay attention to their resume and think about how that's going to come off to a jury. The benefit of just recognition of where they went to school or where they were trained or where they currently practice, I think is important and probably more so for doctors than others. I agree. I think sort of looking at the whole concept of calling an expert witness in a trial I think expert witnesses are sort of a necessary evil. You need them to make your case in a lot of cases. But really, 
I think they're the least, a lot of times it, it, initially, they're the least believable or credible witness in the case because you, you got to remember they are a paid witness. They're a witness who is being paid to be there and being paid to give their opinions in the case. The focus groups that I've done from talking to jurors after trials, I think jurors are, are to put it mildly, skeptical of anything they hear from an expert. First of all, I think I really don't get an expert unless I really need one. And, and even then, limit as much as I can what issues I'm, I'm asking them to address. At trial, though. Yes. They testified to everything that they might, that we might want them to testify to in their deposition and then whittle down from there, most likely. Let's talk about how you find a good expert, right? Right. Erica, what are some of the things that you do to find a good expert when you need one? Well, I think finding each type of expert is a little different. So if we're just focusing on, say, a medical expert in a case, if it's not a case where I know an expert or have an idea of who I want to use, I'm going completely blind into a new area of medicine. I'll honestly start at PubMed sometimes and do some searches and see who the players are publishing in that area and then do more research as far as if they do testify, if they testify for plaintiffs or defendants or both. And then I end up trying to find at least two to three people sometimes to interview and get an impression of them and get an impression of, will they be able to teach a jury? Will they be able to communicate in layman's terms before I even have them review a case or look at records? So I try to start that research more organically than just using who we may have used in the past, depending on the case. You need to get an expert, obviously, who is highly qualified on the subject matter involved in the case. Once you do that, whether it's online or you get a referral from somebody else or you see uh, a verdict reporter where this person has testified successfully in a case similar to yours, one of the things that I always like to do, and I always try to do it, is meet with that expert. And this is before I agree to hire them or retain them. But, and this may be after the initial phone call, after you've provided them with some materials, but I like to get them out of their comfortable setting in the office, take them to lunch, have a cup of coffee, take them to dinner, and spend time talking with them to find out a little bit more about who they are personally. Do they have a family? Do they have children? What are they doing? To really get to know them. And, and I, the reason I like getting them out of the office setting is, first of all, it gets their mind, gets all the distractions away from them and gets them focused on you and your case. But the other thing, too, it really impresses upon them how important your case is. I think that's really important, too, because I find, especially with working with medical experts, if I'm traveling to their city to go prep them for a deposition, they have worked in a small amount of time to prep them beforehand. And I always, I do feel rushed sometimes. And quite frankly, as a younger attorney, I'm kind of like, okay, thank you for your time. Like, uh, okay, we'll do this quickly. And that's probably the wrong approach if you need to make sure that they are engaged in your case and understand that you'll pay them for their time for lunch. <laughs> but, you yeah. know, it's important that they get engaged as you, you are. Know, that's a great point. And really, we, we talk about how the most important quality of a good expert is a communication skills. And to me, my sort of gold standard is after spending some time with the expert, I ask myself, is, is she someone that if, if she was teaching a class, would I sign up for it? 
Mm-hmm. Right? Is it somebody who I like and enjoy talking to? I understand what they're saying. They take the time. I mean, here's the thing. If you hire an expert and that expert doesn't have the time to talk to you on the phone about that case, or they're too busy to get away from their office and discuss that case with you in detail, you got trouble ahead. Obviously, they need to have the qualifications, the CV, the background, and they need to be a good communicator. But I think beyond that, you need to look for baggage. That person has testified 500 times and has earned three or $4 million serving as an expert witness, and their fees are $1,200 an hour and things like that. So you got to look at everything. You got to you got to look at what skeletons might be in the closet. I would never hire an expert in a case without doing this, and that is to talk to as many other attorneys who has hired that who have hired that expert to see what their experience has been. Especially an attorney or a law firm that has taken that expert through the discovery process and all the way through trial. And uh, recently. And recently. Yeah. Yes, and recently. I mean there's so much information out there now. The internet and who knows. And listservs are really important for that too, professional listservs. That's the best information exchange that I've found on experts by far. I think you need to do a very thorough background check of any expert. That includes initially any any depositions that this witness has given in other cases. Get all of them, read them, look at them, talk to the attorneys that they work with. You want to make sure that they've not gone on the record saying something that doesn't sound consistent with what they're saying in your case. We had a case in the office uh, two or three years ago it was an automotive product case, and there was one expert in particular who had about a 20, 25-year history testifying for the same car manufacturer. And what we did with a couple of the law clerks over the summer is we collected, I don't know, 180, 200 deposition transcripts of this expert, and the job took all summer. And what we went through is we, we ended up boiling it down to about 40 or 50 questions from these other depositions that this expert had answered under oath in 30 or 40 times in the past. And in any event, you could see tons of inconsistencies. One of the things we found out was between one depot and the next, the expert all of a sudden became an expert in another area of automotive design. And it was a three-month interval between the two depositions. In any event, it was very, very effective. And there was a comment actually from the assistant general counsel for the, the defendant in the case, was in the trial, watching the trial, that after this witness was cross-examined for about 45 minutes, said, well, we're not using him anymore. We had an expert for, I think it was a defendant doctor, actually, who was testifying about their treatment of our patient when we say the alleged negligence happened. And he had a a federal case going on against him where he was claiming that he was mentally incapacitated during that time. And, you know, and we found it and, and matched up the timeline and you'd hope that those things would jump out at you. But when you find something like that, if you didn't do your homework to have missed something like that would just be such a, such a miss. You can do all of these things and still miss something. No question. Sure. But I, I really think the best, most efficient way to, do a background check is to talk to other attorneys that have used that expert recently. And if you can speak to two or three or four attorneys who've used this same expert and they're all very pleased with, with how the expert did and they've taken them, not, not just hired them and the case settled, but actually taken them through trial, I think that's the best. It's a recommendation. I think that's the best that you can, you, you can do. And it's important what you were saying earlier, John, to cross-examine and prepare to cross-examine your own experts to prepare them for trial the same way you would do 
or the other side's experts. I mean, disqualifications. That's something that yeah. you need to ask right off the bat. Have have you ever been disqualified by any court on any issue? And get the documents, get the order, get the transcript, look into it, and and see what it's all about. You got to watch that stuff. I I had an expert last year who had a, a CV packet that indicated all the jurisdictions that accepted the, the testimony. It was an economist on a on an issue that's somewhat contentious, but he didn't put the places where he was disqualified. But but it looked great. You know, you're looking at oh, qualified in all these places, and then period. That's it. And he'd been disqualified in many places too, but that wasn't, of course, promoted. And look at the organizations too. The organizations that your expert belongs to, what publications they have. Really, you just got to look at everything and, and try not to miss anything. So, John, you handle, your firm handles a lot of catastrophic injury, big, complex products liability cases where you have lots of technical things to explain to the jury. I'm wondering how often, if ever, you would file a case without having an expert lined up before you filed it. Never. Never. Doesn't happen. That's really the advantage. One advantage of being the plaintiff is you can take whatever time you need to evaluate the case and talk to several different experts. By the time we file the case, we've gotten the, you know, we've done a lot of investigation, gotten the information, and probably have talked to several experts and gone through this entire process before we get to the point of filing it. I assume we could extend that even back further. There's probably cases where you don't even accept the client or the case until you check to make sure that the theory is viable. Medical malpractice cases are a good example of that. They're very expert dependent. And even in evaluating the case, we use experts a lot to evaluate claims. And we can talk about that a little bit. We send cases to experts who we know are going to be as critical as we are about whether or not we take that case. And we certainly don't want an expert who's going out on a limb or rubber stamping something. I mean, I want experts to be able to pick up the phone and talk to them and they say, it's just not strong enough. You shouldn't go forward with it because that helps the client. That helps us in the long run. It helps them get indignant too, especially in the medical malpractice cases. Any doctors who testify on behalf of plaintiffs, if they're very genuine about the work they do, they usually take a patient safety approach to why they do that work. And if a expert that we send a case to who's looking at the liability, if they are indignant or very surprised by the conduct or think it's something that shouldn't happen, that that is a big plus to me because I want to know how how egregious that error was. Let me ask both of you, how do you approach the financial end of hiring an expert? There's some experts that have extremely high fees. There's some that you're, there, there might need to be a budget or some sort of understanding about how much they should bill, how much work they should do. How, what, how does that conversation go? Typically? What a great question. <laughs> Erica's, Erica's laughing because that issue comes up so often, you wouldn't believe it. I think the higher the fee is, it you know it can get to a point where it's so high it it comes it starts affecting credibility. I mean, if you got an expert witness that comes into trial and they've already billed eighty ninety thousand dollars, which we've seen that, and their rates twelve hundred dollars an hour, boy, that's 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 going to kind of overwhelm anything else that they have to say. So you kind you need to keep that in mind when you're in the, the stage of retaining or hiring an expert. It doesn't happen that often that the amounts are so high that it overshadows what the witness may, may be saying, 
But what we do in every case where it's an expert that we haven't dealt with before, up front, we talk about here's the rate, not necessarily a budget, but here's what we're going to ask you to do. Here's what you're going to need to review. And you're going to need, what are you going to need to do before you can tell us whether or not there's a viable case? And then the question is, how much time would that take? Just a ballpark estimate. But you don't want to be shocked. You've not gotten any bills from any of the experts, and then you get a bill for $80,000 and they haven't given a deposition yet. That is absolutely something that you should talk about up front. And the other thing, too, is especially with a new expert, a lot of times the expert may be doing some things that they don't need to do just yet. For instance, I had a case years ago with a younger lawyer, and every time that there was a deposition in the case, every time there was discovery in the case, this lawyer would send that material to our expert. And 12 months later, even before the expert gave a deposition, we we got a crazy bill that really shouldn't have been that high. But again, everything in the case that happened, we're sending it to this expert for review. So you got to be careful about that. I can say too, as far as being cost effective with your experts, I brought over a skill, if you will, from my days working in a defense firm at the beginning of my career. What we would do when we had a expert review medical records is we would take, you know, you have like maybe six, seven, 20 different providers that have all these medical records that are all interspersed with each other chronologically as far as the treatment of that person in a personal injury case. So what we would spend associate attorney time, which was cheaper than our expert, is I would take all those records, filter out every page that was an authorization or a consent form if that wasn't important to the case, and put those records in chronological order. So a visit consult that's four pages from January 1 is in front of the next physical therapy report from January 5. And we would send that expert a binder of records by year in chronological order for this entire higher person's care. And that saved an immense amount of time in our expert having to organize and just figure out what the heck he or she was looking at. On the plaintiff side, I don't organize records exactly like that because I want to make sure that my expert has everything to look at. But I also make sure that the records are organized in a way that they're not just willy-nilly looking through 12,000 pages of a chart that's not organized. So, for example, I did have a record set recently that was 12,000 pages that I needed a expert to review. But there was really only a week of those records that were important. And the way the records printed out, the chart was one section, all the records for five months. Next section of the chart, all the records for five months. So what we did is we pulled out a week of records from each section of the chart and labeled the files with the Bates numbers in the section of the chart that it was. So is it input and output totals or daily vitals or whatever portion of the chart? And then when our expert opened that folder and could look at all those documents, they could go exactly to the point of the chart they wanted to review. They had everything they needed to review. And that was to give us an opinion pre-suit. So that alone allowed our expert to jump in right away as opposed to spending so much time organizing the information we were sending. And I think that helps as far as making sure our bills are more efficient from that expert. Yeah, I've done that before and I've seen it done many times. 
what what I'll do typically with an expert is we'll take all of the all of the medical records because as Erica said, you don't want to leave any out because then you're accused. Well, you didn't give them everything. They didn't look at everything. And it's really up to the doctor to determine what's important, what's relevant or not. It just looks bad when the attorney doesn't give a full set of medical records. But I'll put them in a binder or a series of binders, have them labeled, and then have a conversation with the expert before we send the records or even a face-to-face meeting, better yet. Here are all of the records. They're not obviously all relevant, but we think that this set, this set, and maybe point out the areas or the specific providers whose records that we think are more important. For instance, if it's a surgery where something has gone wrong, you might have three or 4,000 pages of medical records. And guess what? The op report is three pages. The pre is four Zero right. where that is in the chart. But you do want to have them all there so that they're all available and nobody's questioning you that you selectively provided records to, to an expert. Right. These are important moments where you're deciding what to give an expert. We deal with thousands of records. It seems like 5% of them matter at trial, maybe maybe less. It, it, there's, there's certain documents that matter, and there's a lot of stuff that doesn't. In the beginning, what do you give an expert? What to hold back? Because understand that expert's going to be asked, did you have access to everything? That's something that comes up. You, know, you weren't given this or you weren't given that. So what I, what I try to do is I always try when, when the expert is giving a deposition to have them here, have the deposition here at our office. And what I will do is I'll pick one of our conference rooms and lay out literally every deposition on a conference room table, every document that has been produced, every medical record. I'll have it stacked with a post-it on it describing exactly what it is. Then I will bring the doctor, expert, whoever it is, in and say, here's everything. Here's everything. Take your time. Look at whatever you want to look at. It's all there. It's all available. And I'll leave them sit in the room for half a day or two hours, an hour, whoever they need to look at whatever they want to look at. And they can put post-its on it or tabs or whatever. And we'll leave that in that conference room exactly as is while the expert's given a deposition in another conference room. And every time they're going to be asked, what did you look at? What materials were you provided? And the answer is, well, the file. And what depositions? Well, many depositions. Well, where, where are they? What were you provided? And the expert can say, they're in the room next door. <laughs> and so we will take a break at the deposition. And I'll offer, I mean, if any of the attorneys want to go over there and see what materials were provided or reviewed, they're right there on the table. But if you give the expert what you think they need, you're going to run into questions, accusations. Well, you didn't give everything. You didn't give them. We took 32 depots and you only gave them 31. They didn't give them this depot. And having run into that often enough, that just eliminates it. Here's the whole file. Here's everything. Go look at it. If opposing counsel wants to know what they looked at, here it is. Knock yourself out. So that's, that's what I've done to address that situation. Another topic that I think is very interesting is the background of the expert. In other words, the qualifications are important, but what kind of background, what kind of qualifications? And I think there's a big difference between classroom, academic-type knowledge versus real-world experience. And I'll give you a good example. I handle a lot of automotive product cases, and we get engineers who, I mean, they've, they've written books, and they're on the standards committees, and they have uh, three-inch CVs, and they've testified three, four, five hundred times. And I always try to get somebody like a, like a good old auto mechanic, 
depending on what the issue is. And jurors respond way better to somebody like that. We had a crane case that we tried a few years ago, and it was a product defect case against a crane manufacturer. And there were issues about procedures and OSHA and what was being done and whether it was proper or not. And one of, one of our best witnesses was a crane operator, somebody who'd been still working on the job, had been a crane operator for 38 years. The jury loved him. They believed him. He was one of the best witnesses, I think, in the case. And no college education, didn't have a CV, never had a CV, but he had 38 plus years of working out in the field operating cranes. Who knows more about those issues than somebody like that? Can we flip this the other way? How do you approach experts on the other side where they're just bookish or they have testified only for the defendant 1,800 times, that kind of thing, or, or that the fee is high, the things that we're talking about that we're considering? Do you tap into that much? And when we're cross-examining the other right, sides? Exactly. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I have cases where, and it's mostly the automotive product cases, where the the car companies literally use the same experts and they've been using the same handful of experts for 30 years. And these experts have received like 40, $30 million from the, you know, from the car companies in, in working on cases and testifying. And I just think that really dents their credibility. I mean, it puts a big, big question mark up there. I mean, here's the thing. What is a jury going to remember a day later or a week later I mean, that, that's the $40 million man, right? This person was paid $40 million to testify for this car company. Do you think they're ever going to say anything critical of the company? And another thing, too, when you talk about never testifying for the plaintiff or the defendant, we didn't, we didn't bring that up yet. That's a great point. You want to find an expert that has testified for the plaintiff and testified for the defendant. I mean, if you have somebody who's testified 500 times and every time without exception, it's been for one side or another, I mean, that's a big deal too. And you really need to look at that when you're retaining or hiring the expert. But back to the the car cases, there was an expert who for 30 years had testified exclusively for defendants, had never testified for a plaintiff. I think we went through 100 plus depositions of this expert and this expert had never testified ever that any product that he was being asked about was defective. And he was also asked whether in in the course of his career in the automotive field, he had ever seen any automobile or any component of an automobile that he believed was defective. And his answer was no. He'd never, ever seen a defect. Of course, cars have been recalled and everything else, but he's paid that $40 million for a reason right? They've retained him in 200 cases for a reason. He's never testified for the plaintiff in any other case for a reason. And I think the jury sees that, and I think it makes the testimony sometimes almost worthless. I want to go back to something Erica mentioned about the enthusiasm or the the passion that the expert exhibits in, in the interview while you're trying to decide whether to hire that person. And that, that seems to me that that carries all the way through the case, when you have someone who's willing to take this on, take on the, the plaintiff's problem as their own problem, and to do it with some energy. Yeah, and I think that what John was saying before about getting to know your expert and them getting to know you, actually, since you're 
having this exchange with them in front of the jury, you want that connection to be genuine, is also personalizing your client to your expert. Often a small percentage of our experts have to meet our client in person, usually a examining medical or damages expert. And I want them to get a feeling of our client and know them more the way we do. Because each of our clients that we work with, we get to know them really well throughout the course of a case. And we have that passion and we are fighting on behalf of them and their family really because we know them well and we know what they've been through. So it's important for me to give at least a little bit of that to our expert and try to explain. It's, it's almost like telling someone about a family member of yours and saying, here's who they are. This is how I know them. This is why I care so much about them. And honestly, I do the same thing with my experts. So they don't lose track of what we're doing here. I appreciate that they are giving an opinion that we have retained them for and that they will eventually bill us for. But I want them all to be on the same team and know that we're all advocating for a person who has had something terrible happen. We've talked about how many experts before. And this might be impossible to answer in the abstract, but how many is too many? Sometimes one is too many. Never get an expert when you don't need an expert. If you don't need an expert, don't get one, don't use one. And I say that because... It's the credibility issue. Obviously, whatever that expert's saying, that person's is being paid to be there and paid to say what they're saying or paid to give the opinions that they're giving. And the jury gets that. So I think whatever an expert says, the jury's going to take it with some suspicion or with a grain of salt, no question. And on the flip side, I've never had an expert on the other side that doesn't give up something. And your expert's going to give up something too. And I, in, in the overall, in my experience, I think that experts are most often more harm than good. And the reason we get experts is because we are required to do so in certain cases because we can't make our case without that expert. If you can make your case without an expert, do it. So uh, that's the end of our conversation on selecting an expert. Erica, thank you for joining us on this one. Of course. It was great having you here. And everyone, I hope you enjoyed our presentation and found one or two things you can use in your practice. So for Eric and Erica and me, we're signing off and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with a new episode of The Jury Is Out next week. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. Share your comments with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And if you want a lively look at life and law from a female attorney's point of view, Check out our Heels in the Courtroom podcast and subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.